Here it is. From deep inside your radio. Well, ladies and gentlemen. I think Harry might have gone over the line. I haven't even started yet. Thanks. Anyway, though. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, I... You know, I, I don't say this with any uh, degree of pride or anything. It's just I'm, I'm listening to my own voice in the headphones for the first time in a week. And I just wish I felt as, well, as good as I sound. Because these headphones aren't filled with mucus, but <laughs> the head that they enclose. And I know mucus is not a radio-friendly word, really. So I'm just going to... And that's a jejune topic to be discussing anyway at this point in time. But what the frack? The deep inject. How's your seismicity? I know it's a personal question, but the deep injection of wastewater underground appears now to be responsible for the dramatic rise of the number of earthquakes in Colorado and New Mexico since 2001. That's according to a study published in the Bulletin of the Seismological Society of America, the BSSA. One more S than the Boy Scouts. The Raton Basin, which stretches, as you know, from southern Colorado into northern New Mexico, was seismically quiet until shortly after major fluid injection began in 1999. Since 2001, there have been 16 greater than 3.8 magnitude earthquakes compared to only one the previous 30 years. The increase in earthquakes is limited to the area of industrial activity and within 3.1 miles of wastewater injection wells, that is, the wastewater from hydraulic fracturing or fracking which began in 1994 in Colorado and in 1999 in New Mexico. The wastewater is injected underground in disposal wells and can raise the pressure into the surrounding area, inducing earthquakes. Several lines of evidence suggest the earthquakes in the area are directly related to the disposal of wastewater, the, a byproduct of extracting methane and not to hydraulic fracturing occurring in the area. But the Wastewater is yeah, okay, produced by the thing. Beginning in 2001, the production of methane expanded with the number of high-volume wastewater disposal wells increasing along with the injection rate. Since 2000, the total injection rate across the basin has ranged from 1.5 to 3.6 million barrels of wastewater a month. The authors are all scientists with the U.S. Geological Survey, and they detail several lines of evidence directly linking the injection wells to the Say it with me now. The seismicity. No, I didn't know it was a word either. But it's it's a more radio-friendly word. Uh, no, I'm not going to go there. News of the godly efforts by the Archdiocese of St. Paul and Minneapolis to cover up clergy sex abuse stretch back to at least the 1950s. It's a legacy. It's a tradition. It's a heritage. It's a decade earlier than previously revealed, according to documents released this week by Attorneys for the Victims. The Archdiocese file on the Reverend Louis Heltzer shows that bishops used now familiar strategies to protect Heltzer, sorry, Heitzer, from prosecution nearly six decades ago, according to Minnesota Public Radio News. During the 1950s and 60s, four bishops failed to notify police of allegations that Heitzer sexually abused several boys. Instead, the archbishops transferred Heitzer to 14 parishes over his 27-year career. That's about a parish every two years. That's good work. The um, pages raise questions about how long Catholic leaders in the Twin Cities have covered up abuses. Memos and letters show a pattern of secrecy by Archbishop John Murray, who served as the third Archbishop of St. Paul from 1931 to 1956. Archbishop William Brady 
From 56 to 61, Archbishop Leo Binns from 61 to 75, and Leo Byrne from 67 to 74. The world is revealed in which church leaders protected priests who sexually abused children and downplayed complaints from parents and their children while victims suffered in silence. Heitzer, a German immigrant who died in 1969, spent less than a year at most parishes before bishops quietly sent him ex- elsewhere. In a 2002 letter, then-Vicar General Kevin McDonough described Heitzer as, quote, perhaps the most abusive priest ever to be a part of this archdiocese. I now believe that he abused boys every place he went, unquote. Uh, Archbishop John Neenstadt claimed Heitzer was permanently removed from the ministry in 1969, but the documents released this week show that the church never removed him from the ministry for more than a few weeks. In the months leading up to his death, that year Heitzer had been working as a chaplain in Ivanhoe, Minnesota. News of the Godly, ladies and gentlemen. Copyright feature of this broadcast. And last week... uh, I discussed at some minimal length the uh, President President Obama's statement during his uh, first election campaign that he hates dumb wars. He was talking about the Iraq War at the time. The smart war, of course, was Afghanistan. (laughs) But I think he must like dumb dumb publics because... um, the president has repeated his promise now not to use U.S. ground troops in the fight against the Islamic State, saying, quote, when the world is threatened, when the world needs help, it calls on America. I didn't, I didn't get the call. And we call on our troops, he said. I won't commit our troops to fighting another ground war in Iraq or in Syria, said Obama in his uh, weekly radio address, it's more effective to use our capabilities to help partners on the ground secure their own country's futures. Unquote. Samantha Power, as UN ambassador, said today on the Sunday Yak shows that when he talks about our partners on the ground, he's referring to the Iraqi armed forces in Iraq and to the moderate uh, Syrian rebels, the Free Syrian Army in Syria. The Iraqi armed forces, of course, which notably melted away at the first sign of the Islamic State earlier this year, and the Syrian rebel moderates who uh, have been losing ground in Syria and who reportedly really haven't been able to nail down whether this is 100% true or not. not. Um, Originally kidnapped U.S. journalist Stephen Sotloff and sold him to Islamic State, which, of course, later on videotape, executed him. Robert Gates, Obama's former defense secretary, voiced widespread concern and skepticism about Obama's stated policy. According to the Associated Press, he told them, quote, they're not going to be able to be successful against ISIS strictly from the air or strictly depending on the Iraqi forces or the Kurdish Peshmerga. So there will be boots on the ground if there's to be any hope of success in the strategy. Robert Gates, Obama's former secretary of defense, and adding to Secretary of State John Kerry and Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman Martin Dempsey, who two weeks ago said there was a likelihood or a possibility that there would be U.S. troops involved in this. Kerry said, if something very very dramatic changes. Now this week, General Raid Odierno, the Army Chief of Staff, said 
it might be necessary to deploy more U.S. forces to Iraq beyond the 1,600 troops already there. Warning that the fight against the Islamic State will intensify and could go on for years. Odierno served as the top U.S. military commander during the last war in Iraq, according to the Washington Post. Also said he would not rule out the need to send small numbers of U.S. ground troops into combat or as frontline advisors. He said, I, 60, 1,600 troops is a good start. I don't think there's a rush, a rush to have lots of people in there now. Weasel word alert. Now. He did predict that as operations accelerate against Islamic State, commanders will visit and revisit U.S. troop levels. With a dumb public, you don't need a dumb war. Hello, welcome to the show. I don't know what you're talking about I've known from the very first day It's inside and it wants to get out I don't try to sound some other way Cause I'm free from self-hatred and doubt I'm in touch and my inner child is funky Cause my music is my monkey I can sure flip my wig on that stuff Wanna pass me a smoke, can't deny It's a gas of a joke with a buff Try to sell me a spike to get high I got to tell you I'm quite high enough Can't you see I don't need to be no junkie Cause my music is my monkey From London, England, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to read the trades for you. Gates funding spurs doubts over public media's impartiality in education reporting. This is from Current trade magazine of public broadcasting, and I'm going to read it for you, at least some of it, because that's what I do, some of what I do. Public radio journalists find themselves navigating an ethical gray area as they receive funds for reporting on education from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which has become an influential and controversial force in steering national education policy. funder has continued to back reporting on education issues, it and billionaire founder Bill Gates have increasingly become part of the story, according to the Washington Post, 
The Gates Foundation has spent more than $233 million to promote national adoption of Common Core standards. Now being implemented in public schools, the learning goals have met with growing criticism from lawmakers, educators, and parents. Gates has responded personally by explaining his backing for the Common Core in speeches and interviews. He told a conference of teachers in Washington that the standards are pivotal to the effort to improve education. Few funders are as out front on an issue covered by the journalists they support. A case of similar overlap came to light earlier this year when the PBS NewsHour Weekend produced reports about public pensions with funding from a foundation whose co-founder has backed legislative efforts to reduce pensions. After that was written about, and we shared that story with you on this broadcast, New York's WNET, which produces NewsHour Weekend, said it would return the foundation's grant. So they got the stories favorable to their point of view covered for free. That'll teach you. Some readers of NPR, oh, sorry, yes. Some readers of NPR Ed, the network's blog collecting its multi-platform education coverage, have suggested that NPR has compromised its reporting by taking Gates Foundation funds. Their comments prompted a forthright response from Steve Drummond, the senior editor overseeing NPR Ed. Funders don't get to pick what stories we cover or how we approach a given beat, Drummond wrote. The simple fact is, though, in education, there's going to be an all-out of overlap between funders who support NPR and funders who support research and programs aimed at improving schools. Philanthropies are interested in giving their money to the very same people and programs we're interested in writing about. The educators, entrepreneurs, researchers, and thinkers who are doing new and successful things to solve the toughest problems in education. Unquote. Yet other journalists say that the Gates Foundation raises unique concerns due to its extensive reach and influence. Their voice, just by virtue of their size, just becomes very loud over other voices in the debate, regardless of their agenda or how they give their money, says the publisher Mother Jones. It's not a level playing field. All voices do not sound the same. Gates is tricky, says Deborah Clark, executive producer of the Marketplace portfolio of shows. It's a huge organization with a lot of thumbs in lots of pies. Ugh. It's worse than me talking about mucus. But if Gates were doing something negative, would we report on it? Absolutely. Even if they're funding us for it. It's not going to change whether or not we do that story, unquote. Marketplace has a feature called Learning Curve with its focus on education and technology. It intersects with another funding priority of the Gates Foundation, which is back developers of classroom educational tools. Three years ago, the foundation partnered with the Pearson Foundation on developing, quote, a complete foundational system of instruction built around the Common Core standards, unquote. The Pearson Foundation is a nonprofit arm of Pearson, a publisher of educational materials. 
Last December, the foundation settled with the state of New York for $7.7 million after an attorney general's investigation charged it had worked to bring business to the for-profit side of Pearson. Two years later, Pearson and Microsoft announced a partnership to develop digital educational applications that align with Common Core standards. And Bill Gates continues to sit on Microsoft's board. Gates has argued adopting Common Core standards will enable development of digital classroom resources, such as those underway between Pearson and Microsoft. That has prompted further suspicion among critics of his efforts. The Gates Foundation believes that market forces are the source of innovation in education and that technology is the source of innovation in education, says Anthony Cody, a longtime teacher and author of a forthcoming book that criticizes the foundation. They make that very clear and claim that it's not ideological. I claim it's deeply ideological, says Cody. He adds, marketplace isn't stupid. They know what Gates wants. Gates wants positive stories about various technologies and the way that they're enhancing and solving problems in the classrooms. And that's what they're giving to give them for the money. So the money keeps flowing, says Cody. Drummond from NPR says, what we can do is be clear and upfront about who we are and what we're reporting on. The word we use for that is transparency. But readers of NPR Ed and Learning Curve and listeners to broadcast pieces may not always realize they're paid for. NPR credits the Gates Foundation in on-air funding credits, but does not specify that its money supports education coverage. And the NPR Ed section of NPR.org discloses nothing about founders. Likewise, Learning Curve section of Marketplace.org makes no mention of the Gates Foundation. When asked about funding for Learning Curve, an American public media spokesman said the Gates Foundation preferred not to be mentioned in connection with Learning Curve, quote, as they want the focus to be on the program itself. Unquote. Hey, who doesn't? Question that occurs, ladies and gentlemen, when I read the trades for you, copyrighted feature of this very broadcast. I'm just thinking about how nice it would be to be getting some of that grant money right about now, but no. He's not a general. He commands no troops. He's not an inspector. He peeks at no stoops. He's an inspector general. Oh, yeah. News of Inspectors General, ladies and gentlemen. At a cost of $6.5 million, the United States State Department built six telecommunications towers in Afghanistan that have apparently never been used as indicated. This is according to the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, the CIGAR. In proceeding with the project, the State Department ignored objections to the project from its own officials and from the Defense Department, according to the CIGAR who uh, sent a letter to this effect to Secretary of State John Kerry. I guess he was busy with other stuff, like uh, building a coalition of the... Where are they? A coalition of the where are they, ladies and gentlemen. But wait, back to uh, the subject. Such as it is, 
The towers were initially designed to expand cellular communications as well as radio and television across contested areas in southern and eastern Afghanistan where insurgent activity was threatening and destroying commercial and government-owned cell towers, according to the State Department. Opening and expanding telecom services in strategically important provinces in Afghanistan made the tower program one of the highest strategic communications priorities for the U.S.-led reconstruction efforts according to the State Department. But even before construction began in 2011, Afghan telecom officials told the State Department counterparts that Afghan telecom providers would not connect to the systems, among other concerns raised, Seagar said. The Defense Department said it didn't want the towers because of the high cost of fueling the tower's generators. Given this information, said the Special Inspector General, I'm concerned that the officials responsible for planning and executing this project did not take into consideration a number of apparent red flags which were apparent prior to the decision to commit over $6.5 million. Despite these concerns, the State Department moved forward with construction. In the end, the new towers could not be used for their intended purpose. State Department officials turned two of the towers over to the Pentagon intends to auction the remaining towers. Communications towers, of course, are frequent targets of attacks from insurgents. The State Department said cellular communications providers would not use the towers because their operators were being threatened by the Taliban. Well, who would have predicted that? Man, quel surprise there. NASA will not meet a goal ordered by Congress to find 90% of nearby and potentially dangerous asteroids larger than 460 feet in diameter, according to NASA's Inspector General. Shortfall comes despite a tenfold increase in NASA's annual budget over the past five years to track and assess potentially dangerous asteroids and comets, so-called near-Earth objects, or NEOs, which fly within about 28 million miles of Earth. That's a big neighborhood. The agency's efforts are poorly coordinated, ill-managed, and understaffed, according to the report from the Inspector General. Aside from that, Mrs. Lincoln... How do you enjoy the efforts? NASA estimates it has identified only about 10% of all asteroids 140 meters and larger. That's uh, 460 feet. Given its current pace and resources, NASA has stated will not meet the goal of identifying 90% of such objects by 2020. Uh Uh-oh. There's one now. A one-person office manages a loosely structured conglomerate conglomerate of research activities that are not well integrated and which lack overarching program oversight, objectives, and established milestones to to track progress. That doesn't sound good. NASA has found about 95% of the largest and potentially most destructive asteroids, uh, half mile or larger in diameter, about 66 million years ago, a six-mile-wide object hit the Yucatan Peninsula, triggering climate changes that helped us say bye-bye to the uh, dinosaurs and most other species alive at the time. A uh, 59-foot-wide fragment of an asteroid exploded over Russia in February of 2013. The force of the explosion matched the energy released in 30 atomic bombs. Those type of events occur every 30 to 40 years, says the Office of Inspector General at NASA, adding most impacts would occur in the ocean rather than in populated areas. So screw it. Who cares about the ocean? 
report made five recommendations for beefing up NASA's asteroid detection efforts, including adding at least four to six employees to help manage the program and coordinating projects with other agencies. Other agencies, really? If only the Missile Defense Agency had taken a look at some audits, it could have saved millions of dollars on a $1 billion contract, according to the Inspector General for the Defense Department. The agency sort of looked at the audits by the Contract Audit Agency of the Defense Department on a bidder's proposal before striking a deal. The report doesn't specify the contractor, but stated it was related to the ground-based mid-course defense program. Wasting money on the missile defense program? You've got to be kidding me. I don't need to know any more than that. News of the inspectors general, ladies and gentlemen. It is a, yes, it is a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Um, there are reports here in the United Kingdom where this, whence this broadcast originates, that um, some twenty-two thousand, I think, was the figure of British troops that were dispatched to Afghanistan to Helmand Province were too fat to fight. It was the term used by the British report. Of course, they've, they've been withdrawn now, waddled home, I guess. But it's not just the Brits. Four years after a group of more than 450 retired U.S. military, le- military leaders issued a report called Too Fat to Fight, chronicling the expanding wastelines of U.S. armed forces, the admirals, generals, and others are waging the war anew with a new report that came out this week called Retreat is Not an Option. The new report includes state-by-state data from the Department of Defense showing that a nationwide average of 70% of young adults is likely to be ineligible to join the military for one reason or another. Standouts are Mississippi and D.C., where a whopping 78% would be considered ineligible. The leading medical reason for these disqualifications, obesity. Nearly one quarter of young adults, 17 to 24, are too heavy to serve. The other main reasons are educational deficiency. Well, that can't happen in the United States. Our schools are the... And having a criminal record. Yes. We can't possibly be thinking about ground troops in Iraq. Again. Because our troops are too fat to fight. Well, when it comes down to truculence, the truck don't stop here. I'll cuss out the bad guys at the drop of a beer. I'll talk up America till dawn's early light. Too bad that I'm too fat to fight. I joined up with the army on some kind of dare but traveling on my stomach it made people stare couldn't fit in my bunk my camo was too tight turns out i was too fat to fight that's right too fat to fight it ain't it a shame Cause war is real 
game Got Billy Coach brains But our very Coach veins Mirror old Too fat to fight We're all too fat to fight That's right Now the burgers and the fries, the cokes and ice cream. Well, I thought I was eating the American dream. But when my boots disappeared clean out of my sight, I could see I was too fat to fight. Now shooting, parachuting, clean out of a plane. It's not just a job, it's a terrible strain. The few and the proud will carry our might. The rest of us are too fat to fight. That's right. Too fat to fight, and it does seem a waste, but building up nations just ain't to our taste got belly coast brains but our very coast veins mean we're all too fat to fight They're smart and they're light. God made us too fat to fight. Now one of these days my son will enlist. I'll be hiding my tears by his mom. He'll be kissed. He'll waddle on that drill field and be home by night. Like his dad, he'll be too fat. Too fat to fight And ain't it a shame Cause war is really America's game We got belly coast brains But our very coast veins Mean we're all too fat to fight we're all too fat to
From London, this is Le Show, and now, ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. We're so sorry. Well, let's start in with Joe Biden. Harry, I don't have to listen to your phone calls to know what you're doing. I know that, Joe. But Joe Biden this week, uh, through a speech to a legal services corporation, Biden referred to lenders preying on members of the military as Shylocks. The next day, he apologized for a, quote, poor choice of words after the Anti-Defamation League criticized him for using a term that is derogatory slur towards Jews. 
The National Football League plans to work with its players' union to make changes to the sport's personal conduct policy. That was announced by Commissioner Roger Goodell. While avoiding giving answers to some specific questions, Goodell said multiple times he had made mistakes in the handling of recent high-profile scandals. I let myself down, he said. I let everybody down. He said he was establishing a committee that would involve outside experts on domestic abuse. He said his goal was to have a new policy in place by the Super Bowl in January. I got it wrong in the handling of the Ray Rice matter, and I'm sorry for that, Goodell said. But now I will get it right by the Super Bowl. Daylight Bangkok, Thai Prime Minister Prayuth Chan Ocha this week apologized for an offhand remark that equated wearing bikinis with unsafety for the tourists. Comments sparked international outrage following the murder of a young British couple on an island in Thailand. Quote, there are always problems with tourist safety. They think our country is beautiful and safe so they can do whatever they want. They can wear bikinis and walk everywhere, he had said on television Wednesday. But can they be safe in bikinis unless they're not beautiful, he added. The next day, he said he apologized for the discomfort caused by the comment. He insisted he did not mean to insult or blame anyone, but only remind foreign visitors to exercise caution at certain places and times, unquote. Dayline, Rains County, Texas. The case against former sheriff's deputy Jared Dooley has been dismissed after he apologized for shooting a dog and gave up his license to be a peace officer in district court. Dooley was responding to a burglary call when he shot Candy on April 18th. Candy was waiting in Cole Middleton's truck outside Middleton's home. Dooley was charged with animal cruelty. Dooley said he felt threatened by the dog, but a necropsy report later showed that Candy had been shot from behind, indicating she was not moving toward him at the time the shot was fired. Apparently, he thought the dog was a young black male. No, he didn't say that. Middleton said he was forced to... Middleton, the owner of the dog, said he was forced to drown Candy to end her suffering after Dooley refused to fire another shot to do it quickly. Dooley was fired a few days after the incident. Dooley had shot at least one dog prior to Candy during his short career as a deputy. He read a prepared statement in court explaining he'd been bitten by a dog prior to being employed. I now recognize my previous history has left me with an abnormal fear of another dog bite. I apologize to Mr. Middleton. The Susan G. Komen organization has apologized for holding the race for the cure in Houston on Yom Kippur. Komen's executive director told the Houston Chronicle the foundation had learned its lesson following the outcry from the Jewish community. In its unsigned letter of apology, the organization said it noticed five years ago there would be a conflict and tried to change the event, but the alternative dates offered on the crowded city calendar did not suit its needs. We must express we did not intend any disrespect or to undervalue the significance of this holy day, the apology said. Susan G. Komen, for whom the race is named, was an observant Jew. A British sporting goods store has apologized following an incident where two Jewish children were not allowed into the store. The British sporting goods store sports direct apologized for an incident where two Jewish children were refused entry. According to the UK Jewish News, two 11-year-old boys were refused entry by a security guard in Hertfordshire, north of London, after the guard noticed the badges for a local Jewish school on their school uniforms, and he allegedly told the children who entered with a larger group, no Jews, no Jews, unquote, one of the boys' parents said. I apologize for the distress and trouble that your son, you, and the others suffered, said spokesman Simon Beatty 
for sports direct. A Jewish online publication in South Africa apologized for an op-ed that compared Archbishop Tutu to Adolf Hitler. A Tutu? No. The South African Jewish Report posted the apology on its website and removed the opinion piece written by Leon Reich, chairman of Likud South Africa, which had been published a day earlier. And the LSU fraternity that has displayed a game day banner mocking the NFL's first openly gay player, Michael Sam, has apologized to the university for shedding negative light on LSU. Yeah, they're worried about that at LSU. The negative light they got for shutting down the Hurricane Center and firing the guy who ran it because he uh, ratted on the Army Corps of Engineers. That's okay, negative light. But no, the banner from the fraternity, Delta Kappa Epsilon's Zeta Zeta chapter, displayed the message, which some deemed offensive, on what appeared to be a bedsheet secured over the entrance of the fraternity house. The apology letter says the chapter will stop hanging signs in front of the DKE house, unquote, oh, sorry, quote, indefinitely. Wow, unquote, no, quote, unquote, wow. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, you're right. It's a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. The um, New Yorker um, recently published a long piece about what's been going on in the Atlanta school district. Um reporting there have been accounts of widespread cheating on testing. Since, uh, you know, testing is now the the metric for everything in uh, post-no-child-left-behind public education and private and, and charter education as well. Widespread cheating, account, accounts of widespread cheating in dozens of cities, including Philadelphia, Toledo, El Paso, Baltimore, Cincinnati, Houston, and St. Louis. According to a report by the Government Accountability Ability office last year, 40 states detected instances of cheating by educators in the previous two years. Now, these are situations in, I know, particularly in the Philadelphia case, where school administrators, principals, principals without principals, you might say, urged teachers to um, do things like erase answers, having erasure parties and changing the answers on tests already taken, or to send home students who were special needs or otherwise not deemed likely to do well on the tests on test days so as to increase the average scores. Atlanta is one of the few districts in which educators have been subpoenaed, though. It's hard to find anyone in the system who wants to look under the rock and see what's there, says Jennifer Jennings, a sociology professor at NYU. She noted that even in Texas, whose reform model inspired no child left behind, scholars doubted whether students had progressed as rapidly as the data suggested, since administrators did exempt low-performing students from taking the test and underreported dropouts. Jennings worries one consequence of cheating and other forms of gaming the system is that it interferes with the policy feedback loop, the conclusions we draw about student learning, and the narratives we tell about reform. Given what happened in Texas, she said, the widespread cheating in Atlanta should have been very easy to anticipate. You're standing in a classroom, a big sit on your ass room. Trying to reach 3.30 in one piece 
You're supposed to do some teaching Those kids you just ain't reaching You might as well work for the police For the police Oh, the board's got you competing Parents think you're cheating You're paid for 12, only work for nine When time comes for testing Be smart and do the best thing No need to put your butt up on the line Up on the line Send the slow ones home Make the bright ones stay Give the answers away if you're so inclined Make your test scores rise Be a hero in their eyes Little thing called No teacher left behind
the answers away if you're so inclined. Make that test scores rise. Be a hero in their eyes. Little thing called, no teacher left behind. Little thing called, no teacher left behind. No teacher left behind. Sister, I've watched your fragile features grow. I know all the pain that you retain inside. I'd do anything to make it go. I can be wearing, I can be tearing at times. There's just one thing I want you to know. What it feels like, life has laid you low, and there's no one else hanging round. When it feels like you're just a rolling stone, I'll keep your sweet feet firmly on the ground. Cause you and I have grown up. You and I have sold out. You and I have laughed, and we're here. Keep, keep rolling on. Keep your sweet feet firmly on the ground. Now, news of the warm, ladies and gentlemen. U.S. power plants are an outsized contributor to the world's carbon pollution, according to a new report by the Environmental America Research and Policy Center. In 2012, U.S. power plants added more climate change causing carbon to the environment than the entire economies of any nation other than China. A relatively small number of primarily older coal-fired plants were the main culprits. The war on coal. (laughs) Climate change may expand suitable cropland, particularly in the northern high latitudes, but tropical regions may become decreasingly suitable 
according to a study published in the open access journal PLOS1 by uh, Florian Zabel from Ludwig Maximilians University, Germany, and colleagues. So uh, we may lose more arable land than we gain as warm climate shifts northward. Peak tornado activity in the central and southern Great Plains of the United States is occurring up to two weeks earlier than it did half a century ago, according to a new Montana State University study whose findings could help states in Tornado Alley better prepare or just get more afraid. Tornado records from Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, and northern Texas show that peak tornado activity is starting and ending earlier than it did 60 years ago. Well, if it's ending earlier, last month was the warmest August since records began being kept in 1880, according to NOAA. NOAA also projected out scenarios for the rest of the year, making clear that 2014 may be one of the very hottest years on record and possibly the hottest. The oceans were particularly warm. Ocean warming blew more than one record out of the water, so to speak. The August global sea surface temperature was 1.117 degrees above the 20th century average. This record high departure from average not only beats the previous August record set in 2005, but it also beats the previous all-time record set just two months ago this past June. News of the warm, ladies and gentlemen, copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time, over the same stations, over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. You send 440 cable system in Japan, around the world through the facilities of the American forces, and up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant, WBCQ The Planet, on the morning one of four in Berlin. Available for your smartphone through Stitcher.com. Around the world via the internet at two different locations, live and archived whenever you want at harryshare.com and kcsn.org, and available as a free podcast from wwno.org, SoundCloud, Sideshow Network, and iTunes for free. And be just like noticing that we are going to send more ground troops to Iraq. If you'd agree to join with me then, would you? Already, thank you very much, huh? The tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Hawaii desk. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead, Jenny Lawson at WWNO in New Orleans, and Adrian Bodnam here at Global Radio in London for help with today's broadcast. email address for this broadcast and the playlist of the music heard here on and Cars I Talk t-shirts all available for you at harryshearer.com
and I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. I'm going to go blow my nose now. The show comes to you from Century of Progress. You didn't need to know that. Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans flagship network for the Change is Easy radio network. So long from London. Thank you.